When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That's me. Hello. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and I also write an advice column. Whenever I research my pieces, I get to speak to various highly knowledgeable experts, and I always come off the phone buzzing with everything I've learnt. These conversations usually happen in private and have to be cut down in order to fit my word count. But here, for the first time, you have a chance to listen to the sort of conversations we have in much more detail and depth. Trauma isn't something I'd really thought a lot about until a few years ago. I thought trauma was something that other people suffered from and you suffered trauma if you'd been to war. I remember years ago watching an episode of the original Upstairs Downstairs and there was a footman called Edward and he'd just come back from fighting in World War One, and he had what was called shell shock but we now know as PTSD. There's also a really famous photograph taken by the photographer Don McCullen of a US Marine in Vietnam in the late 60s where this soldier is just staring ahead of him, empty-eyed, clutching his gun. That's what I thought trauma was. But the more I did my column and the more I heard about people and their, shall we say, everyday traumas that they'd suffered, the more interested I became in it. I first spoke to Joe Stubley, a consultant psychiatrist in psychotherapy, a few years ago in relation to a letter I'd got from a teenager who had witnessed a highly traumatic event when they were seven years old. And Joe taught me about how trauma can affect the brain and also the body. And this was something I became more and more interested in. You don't have to have gone to war to have experienced trauma. And what this podcast is about is how trauma affects our ordinary everyday lives. We learn how to recognise trauma and recognising it, as we will see, is really important because how we process trauma can help us to deal with it. We learn how it affects the body as well as the brain and we start to look at how we might begin to heal trauma. Jo is a consultant psychiatrist in psychotherapy and leads the adult section of the Tavistock Trauma Service. She has a particular interest in complex trauma and is a member of the British Psychoanalytic Society. And as you'll see, she's quite brilliant. Please note, we do touch on some traumatic events in this podcast. Jo, hello. You probably remember you and I first spoke a couple of years ago about a problem that I got into my column where a teenager had written in saying that they'd seen their father kill themselves. And the original letter that we read was 
super detailed, almost filmic in its detail, so much so that me and my editors at The Guardian, first of all, thought it might be made up. But you explained to me that actually traumatic memories can, in fact, be like that. Do you remember that problem? I remember it very well. I thought it was a a, a very distressing description of someone struggling with something so awful in their lives. And you're right, of course, you know, that that issue about the traumatic memories being laid down differently can often leave people thinking this can't be real. It sort of feels like it might be a bit Hollywood or a bit sort of you know, inauthentic in some way. But it is because of this reality that when we're in some kind of incredibly stressful event, the way that our memory lays things down is different. So it becomes more like a film. A lot of people might think that trauma and what it can develop into, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is what happens to you if you go to war. But there is what I think of as more everyday trauma, isn't it? Can we talk a little bit about what trauma is? I think it's a really important question because, of course, we all experience moments of threat or adversity in our lives all the time. So what makes something traumatic? And there are all kinds of different descriptions that are given on this, but I think that there are a few important features. And one is that it is when threat becomes overwhelming, when one feels completely helpless, and that there is something that is inescapable, so that our usual ways of being able to defend ourselves and manage are no longer available. There's a a really... um, well-known trauma expert called Judith Herman, who describes trauma as being a combination of the experience of being disempowered, and I think that links to the helplessness. And the other bit that I think is really important is she says it's also about disconnection from others. So trauma leaves us overwhelmed, helpless and alone. Do you mean it disconnected in the moment that it's happening or subsequently or both? Both. So I think that there is, in the moment that it's happening, we have this kind of sense of our worst nightmares are realised. So really powerful life and death anxieties get activated. Anxieties of falling apart, of disintegrating, of being attacked. And at the same time, our belief that we hold kind of in a very unconscious but powerful way of of being able to trust uh, that the world is safe and that other people are, are sort of looking after us is also shattered in that moment. So it's a moment of complete aloneness. And that then leads on to an ongoing potential to feel disconnected from others. And can trauma be subjective? I mean, could one person experience something and it not be traumatic to them, but someone else couldn't it be traumatic? Absolutely. I I think that what we have to understand about trauma is that it's an individual experience. It is a combination of that event at that moment for that particular person in their life with their life history. And for one person, something can be overwhelming and traumatic. And for another, it may be more adversity. It may not have the same impact because of that subjective and personal nature. Now, of course, there's always going to be those huge traumas that most people are going to find traumatic, but it is a whole spectrum. 
so some people might be more susceptible. I know you and I have talked about a problem quite recently about a woman who had trauma after giving birth. We try to think about what her history might be like and that might make her more susceptible. So really nobody's got the right to tell you you didn't find something traumatic if you did. Mm, absolutely. I and mean, there's a lot of really good evidence now around the kinds of risk factors of what might make it harder for you to have a difficult experience and to, to not find it traumatic or to find it traumatic to be able to move on. I think the number one risk factor, and I think we've seen this in some of the people that we've talked about, is that if you have a history in your childhood of traumatic experiences, that is inevitably going to put you more at risk of not being able to move forward after difficult experiences as an adult. The other kinds of risk factors that are worth thinking about is also if there's a family history of trauma, if you've had mental health difficulties yourself, if there is at the moment of the traumatic experience, if there is an experience of dissociation, and I can describe that a bit more in a moment, and then two really big risk factors for after the event are, first of all, if you perceive that you don't have a good social network and notice I focus on the perceived because you might have a lot of people around you but if you feel that you can't talk to them and get support from them then you know that is a particular risk factor and the other big one is is if you've got a lot of ongoing stresses afterwards so we've begun to identify a lot more of these kinds of factors that might put people more at risk why does it put them more at risk? Well, there's some interesting ideas about that. I mean, I suppose if you start with something like childhood trauma, if you have had what we might call adverse childhood experiences, and many people will have heard there's a, a real growing evidence base now around this idea of children going through different difficulties, whether it's physical, emotional or sexual abuse or parents separating or a lot of domestic violence in the house or, or bullying, those kinds of things, then you are predisposed to have to struggle a bit more when you're facing adult adversity. And one piece of evidence suggests that there are changes that can actually happen in the brain if those kinds of experiences occur that put you in a position where you're constantly more on guard for the next bad thing that's going to happen. And if you're in that state, then you are potentially more likely to struggle with the next bad thing that's going to happen. It also links with how you respond to it. So I mentioned a moment ago this issue around dissociation. Now, essentially what we mean by that is that it's that experience that happens when, you know, when you're driving home and you've got something on your mind and you get home and you realise you can't remember any of the journey. <laughs> yes. That's dissociation in a mild form. It's something that we all do. But in a severe form... It happens to the point where people can sort of leave what's going on without their bodies going. It's what we call the escape when there's no escape. And children who've had a lot of trauma learn to do this because it's linked to that whole area of fight, flight and freeze. 
our body's automatic responses to threat. So, you know, if we first of all have something that feels threatening, we will go into fight flight. We'll either try and uh, run away from what's happening or we will fight our way out of it. But if that doesn't work or if you're a child and you've got these you know, powerful adults that are causing the difficulties, then you go into freeze. Your body freezes at its most extreme, go into a kind of floppy state and your mind dissociates, you leave. Now, if you learn that through repeated adverse childhood events as your go-to mechanism for how you cope with threat and adversity, then that puts you at risk because it means that when something happens as an adult that's difficult, you, you sort of take yourself away and you're not there anymore. And that's a risk factor for developing uh, PTSD because you're not able to process what's happened because that part of your mind wasn't there during the event. You mentioned and I've mentioned PTSD. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. So it's post-traumatic stress disorder. And this diagnosis was actually originally described in the 1980s. It got put into psychiatric textbooks as a response to the political movements of Vietnam veterans who were experiencing all kinds of difficult symptoms and weren't getting mental health help. The other political movement that also helped a lot with this diagnosis of PTSD was the feminist movement because women who had had sustained interpersonal violence, domestic violence or sexual abuse as a, a child were having similar symptoms to what the Vietnam veterans were having. So PTSD got put into the psychiatric classification. First time that they've ever done that, of putting in something that's been linked to a traumatic experience. And what it essentially describes, and this has changed over the years, but there are three main categories of symptoms. First of all is what they call hyperarousal. Now this is like the fight-flight response that people are going into all the time. It's when your body is getting ready for threat. So people will often feel anxious, irritable, um, often find it difficult to sleep, might find that their heart's racing all the time, gut might be churning, all of those sort of awful anxiety symptoms. So that's number one. The second category of symptoms for PTSD is what they call re-experiencing symptoms. This is linked to what you were picking up earlier about the difference in memory, that people end up having the experience not being laid down in their ordinary autobiographical memory, where you can sort of go to a memory, have a look at it, remember it, and then put it away again, a bit like it's in a filing cabinet. Trauma memories in this sense are much more like a conveyor belt at a, an airport that, you know, your luggage gets put on. When you have these re-experiencing symptoms, imagine you're sort of standing on the edge of this conveyor belt of memory. You get triggered often by things like uh, a, a smell or a color or a, a sound, and you'll get pushed onto the conveyor belt and you are back in the memory. Now, it might only be flashes of images or body sensations, or it might be the full experience of the trauma that feels like it's happening now. So you're back in the memory in present time. And 
you stay on that conveyor belt of being in the experience until at some point you get knocked off. So you also don't have the freedom to be able to come out of it when it's initially happening. So that's the second category where you get flashbacks, nightmares, intrusive images and things like that. Then the third category you can kind of understand because if you've got that hyper arousal going off all the time, going into fight flight, and you're getting triggered into those uh, reliving experiences, it's understandable that you are going to have a lot of avoiding. And that's the third category. People kind of shut down. They don't, they don't want to go anywhere that they might get triggered. They don't want to find themselves getting hyper aroused all the time. So they shut down in terms of what they do. And they often emotionally numb themselves and sort of switch off a bit, all as a way of surviving. But this in itself then becomes a problem too. So that's a sort of brief description really of what PTSD is. It would never be diagnosed less than a month after a traumatic event because a lot of those symptoms that I've described are kind of ordinary responses straight after an event. It's only if they continue over a period of time or if they return after a fair period that one might think about it being PTSD. And what makes trauma change and set in as PTSD? Well, I think that links partly to your question about processing. I think it also brings in the risk factors as well. So if we try and think, for instance, let, let's take an arbitrary example, and this is not someone I've actually seen, it's more of a kind of composite of people. Sure. But if we think about someone who's been in a really difficult car crash and mm. they've been physically injured and they were, it was an awful experience. What is likely is that in those first few days, maybe even first couple of weeks, they would experience some of the things that I've described for PTSD. But if they haven't got a lot of trauma in their background and they haven't got any of the other major risk factors that I talked about, so they've got, say, a supportive group of friends that they can talk to, their life is fairly stable otherwise, they are able to kind of physically recover and get back on with things a bit despite these symptoms, the symptoms usually start to subside and people begin to find a way to process what's happened. And that processing, I think, is often linked to having to grieve for some of the losses that are inevitable in these kinds of traumatic experiences. So you have to kind of feel the feelings that have been stirred up by having had the traumatic event. So even if we're talking about a car accident where, you know, you might say, well, what's the loss in that? Well, one big loss is that the world is never quite the same again. Mm. So you might feel quite anxious every time you get in the car for quite a while. You might also just feel a bit different about your own mortality and a recognition that something more awful could have happened. And those are losses. Those are things that we then have to grieve and mourn and work through. And part of that is being able to properly remember the experience 
to make some kind of sense of it, to give it some meaning. And people use different ways of doing that. You know, some people might think, well, you know, that was fate, but at least this has happened or it shows I've been able to survive something. And in time, it's possible to then have that memory put in as a part of one's narrative of this is part of my life and I've been able to move on. And I think if you follow the thread of what I've been saying, you can see where there might be difficulties that people end up instead getting stuck in the trauma. Yeah. Well, I think recognising it is probably the first step, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And and that's tricky. I think if you minimise or if you've been taught to minimise how you feel or other people in trying to be helpful kind of say, oh, it's no big deal. I had a car crash or... You know, I was broken into in my 20s at night and they actually came and took my bag at the end of my bed. Obviously, that was, you know, upsetting. I don't think I even used the word trauma at the time. But it was only after, really quite a long time after, that I realised that I was developing sort of safety mechanisms at night, constantly rechecking the doors. And, And now, because of the work I do and because the amount of therapy I've had, I was able to link that quite quickly back to that. But, you know, at the time I was young, you know, never happened to me before. But although I don't recognise the sort of the trauma element in looking back at it and feeling like I was back there, I definitely found myself reacting in a way that the people around me found slightly strange. But would that still be a trauma? Yeah, you know, I, I think that... It comes back to what we were saying earlier about trauma being subjective. I think you're saying that something got a bit stuck there for you, that it also sounded like it stirred up a lot of feelings of helplessness and you know, and fear. And I, I think that first of all, what you describe about somehow not registering it being then something that keeps it alive, even when you're not consciously registering that that's what's happening and in that way I think it absolutely is trauma and it is interesting isn't it how much we can end up responding to these things without even really being aware that we're responding mm. so your checking mechanisms you know you, you could end up with all sorts of rationalizations for that rather than doing the work it sounds like you did of making that connection and did that help yes it did and um I, I sort of became, you know, I, I checked the door once and not multiple times, not have to get up. But it's weird where it came out as well, when it came out, which was quite a long, two decades later, really. But that's not that weird, you know. That's not that weird at all. It's one of the things that we often see in the trauma service that I run at the Tavistock, that we have people sometimes come to us two or even three decades and sometimes even longer after traumatic experiences that at the time weren't quite registered as traumatic experiences. And then something else happens that brings it back up again. And so it might be, you know, we had quite a few people who, when they saw the Twin Towers for 9-11 on the television, and remember that played repeatedly. Yes. That brought up earlier childhood traumas that they hadn't thought of. They hadn't kind of registered before, but suddenly they were alive again. Mm. And do you think there was something that triggered it for you? 
I don't know. I think it's, I always swore I'd have, I'd live somewhere with not that many doors. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I've ended up in a house with lots of doors. There was more to control, you know, which on a practical level is perfectly sensible. <laughs> I, I think it was that. I mean, I also think sometimes, I don't know what you think about this, sometimes when people get to a place of safety, they can actually, a, a lot of the abuse survivors that I work with, they say to me, why? Why now? I'm married. Mm. I've got everything I've ever wanted. And yet the trauma of their childhood abuse comes out. and the repeated pattern is that they seem to be in a place of safety. So I don't know if that's paradoxically how I felt. I felt safe, but unsafe. I don't know. Mm. Joe, can we talk a little bit about, a bit more about what's happening in the brain and also how trauma can affect the body? Because I, you and I have spoken about how it can be interlinked sometimes. So first of all, what what's happening in the brain? We've talked a bit about it and the and the fight, flight and freeze response. What else is going on? I think that there is something really important about just kind of laying a bit of background here. So there is a part of the brain that's called the limbic system. It's an area where a lot of automatic responses happen and it's really important in trauma. And if we think about what happens when we are faced with a threat, one part of the limbic system, which is called the amygdala, is like a smoke detector and it's the first bit of the brain to really respond to the potential for threat. And if you, as I think I was saying earlier, have a lot of earlier traumatic experiences, your amygdala can be in sort of overdrive. It's like a smoke detector that goes off every time that the toast is burnt. So There's that happening all the time. And then the other really important bit of the limbic system is a bit that's called the hippocampus. Now, the hippocampus is a part that when we're having an experience, it takes that experience and compares it to other experiences that we've had that might be similar. So it helps us to contextualize what's happening. So it can sort of say, you know, yeah, we've had something like this happened before, that happened this amount of time ago. So it helps us to then put the experience into our filing cabinet of memories. And when you've had a lot of childhood trauma again, your hippocampus might be damaged by those experiences. So it doesn't work as well. And they think that's part of why people end up having these flashbacks and intrusive images and nightmares because the hippocampus is not working to be able to put the memory into the past. It stays in the present. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, the other thing that happens to a different bit of the brain, which is more like our higher functioning, our capacity to be able to engage with people, to empathize, to have good social connections, that's more our sort of executive function, cerebral cortex part, that can also be damaged by a lot of childhood trauma, making it harder for people to have social kind of connections that they feel happy and comfortable with. Now, having said all of this, I do want to at some point, maybe now's the right time to say it, I'm not at all saying that everyone who has childhood trauma has these problems happening in their brain. It is some people, and we're still learning why some people have resilience and some don't. But if those sorts of things are happening in your brain, all of it puts you more at risk to not being able to manage your life in a more day-to-day way, but also particularly if you have another traumatic event. And what about the body? Can trauma lodge in the body? Absolutely. So there's uh, someone who I suspect many people have heard, a a trauma specialist called Bessel van der Kolk. He wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And anyone who hasn't read it, I would highly recommend it. It's on my bedside. (laughs) It's an absolute Bible. It's so eye-opening, that book. It really is, isn't it? Because what, what I love about what he does is that, of course, the title says absolutely what you're saying. Trauma is lodged in the body. But what he also explains is why that is because of how he puts together what goes on in people's brains in the the brain scans that he does and links it to their history. So what I was just saying a moment ago about how trauma is in the present because of what's happened to the hippocampus, those reliving experiences, that's all going on in the body. Fight flight is all in the body. So, you know, your heart rate is raised, your gut is churning, your your eyes get narrowed in terms of like tunnel vision, your muscles are tense and shaking. So all of that stuff is held in the body, but also the trauma experiences, the reliving experiences are felt in the body and sometimes only in the body. So people might experience what happened in the traumatic event as though it's happening now to their body. And this is one of the reasons why traumatized people will often end up going to their GP saying there's something wrong with my gut or there's something wrong with my heart or there's 
you know, there's something wrong with all of this pain that I've got in my body. And quite often that's the trauma memories. And how could people begin to find out if their physical pain, I mean, it's a process, isn't it? I heard a really interesting story of a colleague who had chronic back pain and was about to have really quite serious back surgery. And her surgeon kind of at the last minute said, I want to try something. Are you interested? And he said, I, she lost her husband very young. I think the trauma of your grief is lodged in your back. And they worked together on doing, I think, so. I don't know, perhaps you know more than I do, not surgery. And the, pe- the pain went. And when she mm. told me this a few years ago, I did think, okay, you know. <laughs> but as time's gone on and I've learned more about trauma, I revisit that story. And I think, wow, what an amazingly enlightened surgeon. Yeah. But actually, unfortunately, in my life, I, I do know some people that have suffered childhood abuse some of it very serious and they all have lifelong back pain and it's just anecdotal but I just think gosh you know that's really that really has made me think of course we don't know and I'm not saying it's due to that but it's it's quite amazing how the trauma can have a physical effect isn't it absolutely and you know I I think that story is so interesting because one of the first things it says to me is that I think we've got a lot wrong in the way that we sort of differentiate mental health from physical health. I think we need to kind of go back to a a, a situation in which we look at people holistically. And if you've got back pain, we shouldn't be having to differentiate what's going on here. We should be looking and thinking, well, how do we help someone feel as good as they possibly can be? I like your story because it also says something about that maybe there was something about grief that hadn't been worked through that then gets lodged in the body, which I think is also part of what happens in trauma. So we have to look after our bodies and minds and part of the looking after them is listening to them. And I think what often happens when things get lodged or stuck in, in the way that you've described is there's been a sort of switching off from listening. Maybe the grief was too much. Maybe the pain of things that happened was too much. And rather than being able to find a way to do that grieving, to listen to what you're feeling, to look after your body, instead something got switched off and then stuck. And I'm not saying that's definitely what happened to your friend, but that's certainly something that we see a lot in the people that we see in the trauma service. Well, when my dad died, I thought I was dealing with it. And then about six months later, I I have an issue with my breathing, which is psychologically based. Um, mm-hmm. And it started when I was about seven, when something happened, and I immediately couldn't breathe. But it was so bad that I actually thought, no, it's not that, it's... It's the, it's something physical. It's It was something physical, but I thought, no, something's wrong. Mm. And even though everyone around me was like, it's grief. And it was. I mean, I that's when I got into yoga, which I'd like to talk to you about in a second. But I really thought I was dealing with it. And then six months after that, when I brought my dad's ashes back to Italy, I developed, because I know now this is where I keep my stress, such a bad neck problem mm. that I ended up on twice daily 
<laughs> anti-inflammatory injections in Italy where they do love to stick an injection into your bottom. <laughs> and also um, I ended up in a neck brace, which is not something they do wow. lightly. Again, I was convinced that I had something wrong with my neck and I saw about 12 specialists and they all said, this is grief. Mm. But what frustrates me, Joe, is I thought I was dealing with it. And this kind of brings me on to my next question, which is anyone listening to this who thinks, you know, I may have had a traumatic event, I'm not sure. How do they begin to deal with it? I mean, how do you start listening to yourself? How do you, how do you begin that process of healing? I think that there is a problem with how in general in our society as we grow up we get encouraged to not listen to our bodies to our feelings to not attend to what's going on inside of ourselves so when you say i thought i was dealing with it one of the things that i wonder is well how, how do we learn what is dealing with it and one of the really interesting things that I think has happened over the pandemic is that we have all had a bit of a crash course on what gets called well-being. Now, sometimes I think this can be a bit caricatured, but I really like a lot of the stuff that's come out about well-being because it says basic things that we didn't quite take on board in the same way before that if we are going to survive having a lot of emotional kind of things stirred up, maybe a lot of grief, for some people traumas, we've got to look after ourselves. And that starts with basic things about looking after our bodies. And I think if we look after our bodies, and I'm delighted that you've brought up yoga, because I think that's one great example. If we learn how to and this might sound a bit mad, but learn how to breathe, mm. learn how to be properly in our bodies, taking slow, deep breaths and feeling that experience. That is one of the best ways to turn off the fight flight response. And it's one of the best ways to begin to be present to see what we're feeling, which is the beginnings of working through whatever grief we have. So it does become in some ways sort of feeling like I'm, I'm, I'm saying really simple things. But isn't it interesting that so much of our ways of bringing up children and living in our society pre-pandemic definitely didn't attend to any of this stuff? Well, I think the breathing thing is really interesting because, of course, most of us, all of us know about take a deep breath, but not really understanding why. And it sounds so simple that I think we often discount it. I've been doing a lot of work on breathing and learning about breathing. And it's fascinating, really, about how it calms down. I always get them the wrong way around. Is it the so there's a sympathetic nervous system, which is which one does it calm down? OK, so the sympathetic nervous system is the fight flight bit. Right. So as soon as you take the slow, deep breaths and, and try and, and kind of settle in that, you're switching off your sympathetic nervous system. But then if there was more kind of struggle and um, if you were going into freeze, that's one part of your parasympathetic system. And that's what comes into the freeze bit after the fight flight. Uh, there is another bit of your parasympathetic system, which is called um, by Stephen Porges, uh, the ventral vagus bit, which is our social engagement system. 
And that can also, like breathing, switch off our sympathetic nervous system. It does sound really simple, but it does really, really start to help. But if we can just kind of summarise, so so the one thing is to recognise trauma and to let yourself feel traumatised if that's what you think and to, to maybe find somebody to talk to about it. I mean, what help is available in the NHS? I know it varies hugely, doesn't it? It does. And let's go back a step before we get to the NHS, because I think that you're absolutely right to bring up a question of someone to talk to. But I think that early on, what we're talking about is actually making use of your support network that's already around you. And we know that if you haven't got a good one or you feel you haven't got a good one, that puts you more at risk. But that's the place to go to, first of all. So what I was just about to say before about the social engagement system, there is a lot of evidence. And again, I think the pandemic's taught us something that if we connect with other people, it makes us feel better. It makes us feel safer. We're able to feel more kind of connected to ourselves as well and our bodies, it calms us down. In fact, the other day I was even reading that they've discovered these specific nerve cells in our skin that when they are um, activated by someone gently stroking you in a way that people often do when you're in distress, that switches off your sympathetic nervous system, your fight flight as well. So connecting with people, sometimes that gentle touch, sometimes the hug, and this is part of what's made social distancing and lockdown so difficult, sometimes the physical connection as much as the social connection can be incredibly helpful. And of course, if things aren't settling or people don't have that contact, then yes, there are next steps to take and the NHS might be one important place to go to. What's available? Well, I think that it's worth starting with your GP. It's also worth having the conversation with the GP about whether there's any good local counselling. Some of that may be you know, within the voluntary sector. Certainly, there's some fantastic organisations that help people deal with grief and traumatic bereavement. So, you know, I think that there's a conversation to be had about what might be right for you. But I, I do think that there's an awful lot that we have to kind of acknowledge that people can do for themselves before they turn to the kind of more formal channels for help. Sure. Well, what might they be? We've, let's talk about yoga. What changed everything for me was someone said to me that yoga is like psychotherapy, but for the body. Oh, beautiful. And suddenly it made sense. And I've yep. been doing it ever since. So why do you think yoga is good for trauma and just in general for the body? Okay, so I mean, the first thing to say is that there is good evidence now that yoga for trauma works as a what we call an adjunct. So if you're having talking therapy and you use yoga, it makes you able to use the talking therapy better. And there's good evidence for that. So we're not just talking about something that we're saying is a nice thing to do it's actually got a, a significant evidence base for it. But for many of us who are working through our own kind of 
you know, adversity or maybe kind of small T kind of traumas. Yoga, as we were saying, helps with the breathing. It also helps you to be more present and grounded in your body. So that acts against that dissociative response. And the other thing that we've seen and that people talk about is that there are certain poses or movements in yoga that can sometimes serve as a way to open up what that part of the body has been holding. So one of the things that we've seen sometimes in our trauma yoga groups that we run in our service is that a certain posture might bring, first of all, a flashback forward. But then it's an opportunity to be able to talk about what that's been about. And it might have been something that people haven't been particularly aware of or thinking about, but it's got lodged in the body and the yoga helps open that up. Now, I'm not sure this is something people can do by themselves, but can you tell me about EMDR? Okay, so eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. Great big long title. EMDR is a form of therapy that was initially developed for PTSD, but is now used for a wide variety of other conditions as well. There's sort of growing evidence base for it and and it, it, it clearly does work and people are still trying to work out the details of why it works. It's a combination of using some way of bilaterally stimulating people. So the classic thing is that the therapist moves their hand quite fast back and forth and the patient has to follow the hand with their eyes. So their eyes are moving back and forth. And whilst they're doing this bilateral thing, they are also thinking about the worst part of the traumatic memory and feeling that in their body and holding on to the negative thought that's associated with that. So they're trying to hold all of that whilst this bilateral stimulation is going on. And something about doing all of those things together helps to process something of the memory and, and enables people to move something forward and I think that one of the things that happens that we see is that they start with the trauma memory and then they associate back to earlier experiences that provoked similar responses so they chase the chain of the links to earlier events that helps to kind of give some understanding of why this particular event has caused such trouble. So in some ways it helps kind of get a sense of the meaning of the trauma experience. Now you're right, it's not something that people can particularly do on their own, but I think we see a version of it when you go for a walk and you're talking about difficult things with a friend. And in fact, I saw there was something in The Guardian about talking therapies happening while you're walking. Did you see that? I did, yeah. Walking or running, I think. Yeah. If you think when you're walking, you are doing something bilateral. You're moving, you know, one side of your body and then the other. And if you're also talking to someone about difficult things, that seems to help something get processed. So it kind of makes sense, I think, of why the walking might be so helpful as well, as well as the fact that you're often not having to look at each other. And I think that can make talking more easy too. 
Yes, definitely. I think some people see side to side. Do you know what this reminds me of? And I could be completely... When I was a child, I used to love looking out of the window of a train or a car at yep. fast-moving objects. Yep. And that used to really relax me. Is that a sort of bizarrely similar thing? I think it is. And in fact, um, uh, the woman who discovered uh, EMDR, Frances Shapiro, described that she worked it out because she was walking along and was noticing a bit like the sort of traveling that her eyes were sort of shifting quite a lot as she was walking. So it it is, I think, absolutely the same kind of thing. So if people wanted to explore EMDR, how might they do that? I suppose what I would say is that the way that we have ended up kind of discovering some things at the Tavistock is I, I, I think it's probably quite important that people don't get too caught on I want to try this particular kind of therapy because often I think the most important thing first of all is to just if you really are needing some help to find someone to talk to and that the two of you work out together what might work best for you because sometimes one of the things that happens with EMDR and I use it and I think it's a really helpful uh, tool but I think people can think it sounds a bit like magic and it might just make everything go away you know someone sort of waves their hand in front of you and then Mm. you're better and it it feels a bit like years ago when I first started people used to sort of come in and say to me I want you to hypnotize me to get rid of this now I think hypnosis can be really helpful but like EMDR these things I think sometimes people can think so I want to do this in order to just get rid of what's happened. That's just another avoidance in a way, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And it's completely understandable. But what we're saying is that, unfortunately, to be able to really work through trauma, you've got to go through it. Yeah. And obviously, if it's painful, that's not something that people want to do. Exactly. Anything else that people can try? The the sorts of things that have been really coming up again during the pandemic, there is really good evidence that exercise helps people to process grief and trauma, getting out and doing things. So, you know, exercise, particularly outside because of that contact with nature. And there's been a lovely book that's actually been written by a friend of mine called The Well-Gardened Mind. And my friend is Sue Stewart-Smith that came out during the pandemic. And Sue is a gardener and a psychotherapist. And she, I think, would convince anyone of the amazing sort of healing capacity of gardening. And there's even evidence that things like gardening, exercise, being out in nature, all of these things can actually cause an increase in BDNF. This is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It is a chemical that actually helps us to grow new brain cells, which I think is incredible. You know, it's going to help us in the hard work that we have to do. So I think all of those things are fantastic. I also just want to go back to the social connection. I think that the you know huge variety of things that people can do to be with others, which might not be about talking, it might just be about being with people. I think we saw again in the pandemic people being able to do volunteering and help out in different ways because there's also good evidence that 
altruistic activity helps you process trauma. So being able to give back. And I think that those two things, you know, the sort of giving back and being with people reminds me of what I said at the start about Judith Herman. So she said trauma is about disempowerment. Mm. When you're giving back to others, you're empowering yourself and empowering them. And she said trauma was about disconnection from others. So anything that you can do that might be really small, it might be joining a walking group or it might be, you know, going down to the food bank and helping out for an hour or two once a week. But these things really matter. I think we're learning about that in a way that we didn't know before, that community is actually vital in healing as well. How do you know if it's something you don't want to do because it leads back to a traumatic event or because you just don't want to do it for any other reason, like you're lazy or whatever? I, I love the way you put things like that. Because I, I, I think that that's kind of the struggle that we're all having to engage with. Maybe again in coming out of the lockdown in the limited way that we are at the moment that there might be a lot of people who are feeling quite avoidant of getting back out there and it might be you know as you say is it about laziness are they just kind of you know now stuck in their ways or is there actually something that is more avoidant because of significant anxieties maybe losses maybe trauma and we know there's been a lot of all of those for everyone and I, I, I guess it starts, doesn't it, with people asking precisely the question that you asked. How do I know what's going on with me? What's happening here? Am I refusing to see friends and family even though they're all saying it's safe for good reasons? Or is there something else that I need to know about? And if we start asking the question, then we can explore either by trying to think you know, with ourselves, which might be sometimes writing things down or trying to kind of just stop and listen to ourselves. I think that's also linked in with the kind of mindfulness thing, being able to stop and be present and listen to what's going on. Or by talking to someone else, trying to work it out together. Do you know what I do? I have this thing and it's called the dinner plate analogy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's very scientific, Joe. So <laughs> I take an event, I don't know, go to a party or something, but I don't want to go to this party. So I put all the elements of the party on the plate. Mm -hmm. So, for example, outfit, how do I get there? How do I get back? You know, all those kind of things. Yep. And then I think, okay, what could I take out that would make me want to go? And so some, and it really focuses me and sometimes on what the problem is. And sometimes it could be because I just don't feel like I've got anything to wear or I'm really nervous for the drive there. And then I think, okay, so could I take a taxi or, you know, and then I can sort of refigure the dinner plate to think now I can do this. And I, I invented this because to help my children sometimes work out what the problem was, because sometimes they don't know, you know, they might just say, I don't want to go to school or, and then I sort of, you can really hone in, but I've actually found it really useful. And sometimes... I think it's brilliant. Oh, thank you. Um, sometimes... Everything has to come off the plate because everything is wrong with that event. I mean, I've used a party. It's a bit of a silly example. 
And then I have to look at why. You know, why am I doing this? Do I need to do it? Why don't mm. I want to do it? And that kind of helps me work out sometimes what's going on. So, But that is beautiful. And I think one of the things I really like about it is it's a bit like uh, what a lot of people who do cognitive behavioural therapy would do. It is about teasing out what's going on here and why and what could I do to change this and how would I then respond if that changed. So it's taking that time to listen to yourself, which I think is part of what we're saying. This is what's so important about being able to process things that first of all, you've got to know where you are. Thank you so much to Jo Stubley for that really enlightening conversation. Since learning more about trauma, I've been better able to understand myself and understand why sometimes I might not be able to handle a certain situation or certain people, and it's allowed me to be kinder to myself. I hope this podcast helps you too. One of the things I didn't mention in the podcast, but I think is really important, is that if you have found yourself in a traumatic situation and you freeze, it's not your fault. It's your brain taking over your body. We referred to some books in the podcast. I can't recommend highly enough The Body Keeps a Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Jo also mentions Judith Herman's Trauma and Recovery and The Well-Gardened Mind by Sue Stewart-Smith, which is just out in paperback. Later in 2021, a book that Jo herself has edited with Linda Young will come out, which is called Complex Trauma, The Tavistock Model. The series is produced by Hester Kent, the music is by Toby Dunham, and our artwork is by Lo Cole. Follow us on social media, on Instagram, at Pocket Annalisa. You can read my Ask Annalisa Barbieri column in The Guardian magazine every Saturday. And we'd love to hear your suggestions for topics you'd like us to discuss on future podcasts. Please email us at conversationswithannalisa at gmail.com. If you enjoyed and benefited from today's episode, do please share it with someone else you think might find it useful. And it would mean a lot to us if you could give us a review on iTunes. Thanks so much for listening and do join us again. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in, so much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free, so if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.